Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to this week's Failed Critics Podcast. I am Steve Norman. I am joined this week by Owen Hughes. Hello. And Callum Petch. Hello. As we review new releases, Baby Driver and Trans 5 Formers 545. <laughs> the last night. Um, robots in disguise and a few other things as well. Going to just flip the usual running order around quickly and do the news first because there is not much to talk about except we have a new website and we thought we'd best lead with that. It's still the same domain. Yeah, exactly. Like you don't have to look for us anywhere different. We're still failedcritics.com. Yeah, I mean I mean I don't know about you, but I feel like this is exactly as important as the Star Wars news that is going around that there. Like we we are up for our Star Wars, oh, yeah. I feel in the important stakes here. Alden Ehrenreich, they don't like him anymore. Uh, no, no, no. Guy. It's all about the failed critics. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Yeah, fuck that guy. Yeah. We have a new website. Or a new a new um design for the website anyway we've got a banner image so you know what website you want straight away so which means i'll get rid of the horrible little logo that was on the corner for no real reason <laughs> the menus are working properly now we've got actual you know nested menus so i can get rid of those fucking horrible text things we had before and the carousel is gone which i think is quite popular you know get rid of it is quite popular i mean the carousel itself was never <laughs> popular um so yeah, it looks it looks a bit flash. I've got rid of a lot of the clutter that was about the place. It looks mad profesh. Mad profesh, straight from Callum, so you know it's true. <laughs> uh, um, yeah, if people want to have a look at it and send me feedback, please do at Bell Critics on Twitter, on Bell, uh, Facebook.com forward slash Bell Critics or email bellcritics at gmail.com. Um, I'd love to know what people actually think about it. But we ran a poll on Twitter that ended about an hour ago. Three quarters of people who voted in that poll seem to like it better. So I'm taking that as a good sign. It looks very good and all the hard work is is uh, very appreciated and worthwhile. Well, that's OK. <laughs> but yeah, no, I think it looks better. I, I spent a sort of afternoon fiddling around with it and I think I came up with the, the best free design that we could from WordPress. They're actually forking out any cash. I think it looks OK. Yeah. yeah. Um, on to the quiz... Uh, where I'm leading 2-1, and mm-hmm. um, Owen is, again, hosting the quiz, me versus Callum. Mm-hmm. And if I win, Owen, I've got something in store for you. Oh, do you? Which Already? Makes it, yes, and I always think that that should mean um, or offer incentive for my opponent to lose. I was going to say, like, like when you, when you mention like that, it, just gets, it makes <laughs> me feel like I should throw the game that here. It's, yeah. yeah. Mm. But don't. Don't. Please don't. don't. <laughs> Please don't. don't. Well, not intentionally, anyway. <laughs> oh dear. Subconsciously. Yeah, I could play into it, but I would. Um, 
I would really just hope people don't, because the last, like, how many of you won in a row now, Steve? I seem to have watched a shit film every week this year. Do you mean best of three in a row? I've, I've won the best of three quite a few times consecutively lately. I can't think of any time but, this year when I've won it. Amidst um, accusations of cheating. <laughs> and fixing as well. Don't yes. forget, you've, you've fixed a couple of quizzes. Well, che- che- cheating and fixing aren't, aren't those basically like interchangeable terms in this case here for, for this specific kind of quiz. But Yeah. Well. So this quiz is following the same pattern as the last couple. Steve, you're going to start minus two points again because I quite like that from last week. Um, Callum, you're on plus two points. Guess the incorrect answer. You minus one from your total. Guess the correct answer. You add one. Uh, and there are trick questions which move you about as well. Be at zero by the end of the quiz. That's the aim. That's the goal. The theme of the quiz is... You got the is all Transformers theme. Well, I'm definitely ending on minus 10, on minus 8. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, just out of spite. Um, what vehicle does Bulldog the Transformer turn into? Steve, is it A, a helicopter, B, a submarine, or C, a tank? I think it's a tank. Okay, and Callum, what do you reckon? I'm going to say it's a helicopter. Actually, uh, it, it is a tank, so you both move one point closer. So that's one minus one for... Oh, Zunita. Like, like, yeah, if you want. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Um, Rodimus Prime was the true form of Hot Rod spirit and body fused with A, Optimus Prime, B, Ultra Magnus, or C, the spirit of the human, Daniel Witwicky. Callum. Uh, can I say C? You can say C, yeah. I want to say B, Ultra Magnus. Well... It's a trick question. So you both move one point further away from uh, zero. So minus two and two, just to clarify, back to where we started with. Uh, Basically, Hot Rod just gets the Matrix. That's it. He puts it in him. Uh, I think it came from Ultra Can I just quickly ask, are these questions based on the movies or Transformers lore as a whole? Like, they are based on the, just the movies. So that includes the oh, God. Um, animated movie. Yeah, not just like every single Transformers thing ever made. Like, see, okay. exactly, just like the wider, because I know that the wider Transformers lore gets utterly ridiculous. Like, I'd be able to sort of justify yeah. like the nonsense if it were all of it instead of just these movies. <laughs> how do I not know what happened? I've sat through all of them. How do I not know what happened to these? Yeah, well, that's that's why because the Bay ones are just a complete nonsense. So remembering any facts from them would be a challenge. But uh, there we go. Okay, Transformers the movie was released in which year? A nineteen eighty six, B nineteen eighty seven, or C nineteen eighty eight? Son of a bitch. C nineteen eighty eight. Okay, and Callum. Oh, God, what year was Stan Bush a thing? Uh, mm. I'm going to say 86. Okay, well, um, it was 1986. So Callum is a plus one. <laughs> and uh, Steve, you're a minus one. Minus three and three. This is the tightest this quiz <laughs> format has ever been. In the animated movie, the Quintessons hold a kangaroo court, executing prisoners by feeding them to shark 
Croctacons or Raptacons? <laughs> Callum. <laughs> oh, I'm so, I'm sorry to any Transformers fans who are listening to this. Right have you I, have you actually watched the animated movie? I have not. No, it's one oh, of the okay. few. This this it's one of the few I've got. Which one sounds just the wrong amount of stupid? <laughs> I'm gonna say Sharktacons because I know that robot dinosaurs are a thing in this uh, in this universe. So okay, and uh, Steve, it's got to be Sharktacons, hasn't it? Yes, it is. Oh, so, Callum, you're on three points. Um, yes, and Steve is minus two. Peter Cullen voiced Optimus Prime in how many films? One, two, or six? Uh, Steve, it's your turn to go first. I'm going to say trick question. Okay. And Callum? The correct answer is six, but for my worst gate work, I'm going to say one. Well, yeah, it, it it was all six. Yes, the, all five of Bay's Transformers and the um, animated movie. So, Steve, that's minus two points to your score. You're on minus four. Callum is down to two. So, mm, mm. unassailable lead, maybe. Mm. According to Box Office Mojo, what is the total gross of all of the Transformers films directed by Michael Bay? As of the 26th of June, 2017. Callum, is it $1.4 billion, $1.9 billion, or $2.4 billion? Okay, right. Domestic or worldwide? Uh, whatever it was that came up on Box Office Mojo. It'll be domestic. It'll be domestic. Sorry, yeah. I just realized it's got to be domestic because the other two, because if it was worldwide, it'd be well over, it, um, I think it'd be closer to $3 billion. So $1.4, $1.9, or $2.4? I'm going to say $2.4. And Steve? I say $1.9. Okay, well, the correct answer is 1.4 billion. Um, so Steve is now a minus five and cannot win. <laughs> Fuck yes. <laughs> Callum, you're down to one point. Do you want to carry on, see if we can just do the rest of them? There's only four. Nah. No. Okay, <laughs> fair enough. I must say, it's, <laughs> it's, it, it is weird for me to have, like, like for me to have purposely picked wrong answers of that bear. Like, like mm-hmm. somebody who needs to get stuff, like, quizzes of that right all the time of that bear. It's it's weird. Yeah. It's weird to hunt that stuff out. I mean, usually, usually, I'd be more than happy for you to carry on with the questions, but considering it's about Transformers movies, <laughs> I just don't have the heart, the will. We've got to talk about the film later, and, you know... That is uh, true. Yeah. That's enough of fucking Michael Bay and his shitty Transformers. What, 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 once again, sorry to any listeners who are expecting yeah. <laughs> some kind of respect for Transformers here. You, you enjoy your things. We just don't, we just don't get it. That's, that's the diplomatic way of resolving things here. There we go. Yeah. Yes, that makes the quizzes to all now. Next week is winner takes it all. Sorry, Steve. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yes. It's all right. Um, it's all right. It uh, gives Owen a little bit of hope. <laughs> <laughs> it is, he's just been, you know, um, hustling me. That's what's been going on. He's giving me hope. Just, just he's going to take it away. Next week. Yeah, just toying with you. Mm. Um, yeah. So that that was the quiz. Now to all. Time now for what we've been watching where we have a look at some of the films we've seen in the last week or so. Uh, Owen, why don't you start us off with what you have watched? Yep, yeah, okay. I watched a video nasty a sci-fi horror from 1980 called Contamination, um, which 
Uh, I, I will explain the, the story because I guess people might be interested, but it's just nonsensical. It's about some green pulsating alien eggs that cause the people around them to explode. Yep. There's like government conspiracies, evil corporations, I suppose a bit of body horror. Um, it doesn't make much sense, but like part of me thinks who cares because nobody ever watched this film for the story. Um, it's basically... Uh, on some degree, an alien ripoff. You know, I think it was released in 1980 um, when Alien was massive. Ridley Scott's Alien was massive. Uh, it's got a ship, although it's a boat that's full of eggs. Uh, it's got a female lead in Colonel Stella Holmes, who was played by Louise Marlowe. But I mean, it's not—it's not really a, a complete Alien ripoff because budget restraints meant it was set on Earth. Um, they had a ship container, so they wrote a story around a ship container, essentially. Uh, but otherwise, it's not really anything like Alien. It's directed by an Italian guy called Luigi Cosi, or Cosi, who <laughs> his most famous work was Hercules from 1980, uh, 1983, I should say, which is the Lou film. If you ever seen that, where he throws someone into space, so fucking hilarious. <laughs> oh, that um, one. Yeah, 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 no, yeah, I, I, I've seen it. I've seen it. It's, uh, yeah. it's something. It is something indeed. Yep. Um, this uh, stars a few people. Well, I say stars. There are actors in it playing characters. There, there are three principal characters, and only two of them are worth bothering to mention. I think one of those is Stella, uh, who I mentioned, who is played by Louise Mallow. Uh, she is a scientist and therefore intelligent, and also a colonel. Ooh, how threatening for all the men. How do they deal with that? And one of those men is Ian McCulloch, who actually, within like the space of 12 months, he did this. He did Contamination. He was also in the absolutely brilliant zombie film, Zombie Flesh Eaters, which is one of my favourites of the, the genre. And he was also in the not-so-brilliant, but still kind of decent zombie holocaust. All these three films came out within, within sort of 12 months. Um, but he was basically known as being a B-movie actor. Uh, Ian McCulloch's character is also only introduced into this film, bearing in mind he is one of the three main characters and the other guy is just a nothing person anyway. Uh, after about 30 minutes in, and it just comes out of nowhere. Um, so basically, Louise Moreau's character, she randomly blurts out halfway through this, this film, like well, half an hour into it, I should say, this like explanation about, oh, well, there was an astronaut called Hubbard, obviously Hubbard, because that's uh, L. Ron Hubbard, Scientology's uh, yeah. oh, God, it's like when Dead Space named its character Isaac C. Clarke. Did you get it? Ha, 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 Yeah, exactly. Um, so Hubbard, he uh, went to Mars and came back mad. Don't you remember that in the, the 70s, guys? Don't you remember when we sent people to Mars and these astronauts came back? Because up to this point, the whole film, as far as we know, is set in reality. It's set in the modern day 1980. And then all of a sudden it's invented this story about us sending humans to Mars. <sighs> you know, one of the, the guys is still up there. One of the guys was just crazy, and they've left him on the planet. But they brought another one back, which is um, Hubbard, and now he's stark raving mad. He's a lunatic who, as it happens, when they visit him, he's fine, really. He's just a bit depressed. And he soon snaps out of that when he sees a pretty woman. Hmm. Which kind of brings me on to, like, the worst, and by the same token, the most hilarious scene in the film. I'll set the scene for you. After cracking the conspiracy theory... 
the mystery of what's going on. Moreau and McCulloch, they're caught by the bad guys and they're tied up together. This is despite the fact that for most of the movie, the bad guys are basically being trying to murder them in like more and more elaborate ways, such as locking Moreau in a bathroom with one of the pulsating eggs and locking the door, going outside and putting a do not disturb thing on the door. That was it. And then you get like a five minute montage of her screaming about there's an egg in here. Get me out. There's an egg. There's an egg. I'm in the bathroom. There's an egg for about five minutes, which is just fucking hilarious. But anyway, so they're tied up together. They're in this um, this basement and back to back, as I said. Now, for most of this film, the best thing about it is the score, which is by Goblin. So if you know anything about sort of uh, video nasties, if you know anything about horror films, Goblin have the guys who've done the best scores. They did Dawn of the Dead. They did Suspiria. Um, that's Goblin. That's them. They did the score to this shitty fucking low-budget alien ripoff. But that score goes out of the window for this scene, which is replaced by a generic, soft, cheesy, romantic score. Now, the, I've got exact dialogue. I was watching this film like, this isn't real. This can't be a fucking... This isn't serious. So I had to write down the exact dialogue. Moreau turns her head towards McCulloch and she says, you should have listened to your good old cop instincts instead of my MIT educated calculations. Right. To which McCulloch says, you know something... You've always made me feel like a caveman. You're the first woman that I ever went after that I couldn't get past first base with. To which she apologises. <laughs> she says, I'm sorry. So he says, well, imagine how I feel. At which point she turns around and snogs him. That sounds like 70s exploitation cinema to me. Yes, it is the most fucking ridiculous. Uh, this is all basically after, like... Because like, even though she's like a brainiac, she's the scientist, she's the clever one, and he literally doesn't do anything brave or heroic. But of course, what he does do is he slaps her when she goes a bit hysterical, and she sort of thanks him for, for doing that. Because eight is, because, because exploitation, you know. And of course, she's, she's a woman, and therefore she can't resist him. Because look at him, he's, a, he's the very embodiment of manliness. It's awful. I mean, without, like, meaning to sound incredibly racist, you can tell this was made in 1980 and that it was made by an Italian genre director because it follows all the same tropes of every film made by European cinema at that time. I mean, that probably slightly explains Goblin there as well. I mean, again, I was... Yeah. Well, I mean, again, like, as noted on one of the Mystery Science... New Mystery Science Theater 3000 episodes, James Horner did Wizards of the Lost Kingdom before he went off and did, you know, like... Avatar and <laughs> Titanic and all that stuff from yeah, out there. Like, yeah. you know, sometimes you just got to eat. You got you, you, mm -hmm. to go soundtrack shitty Italian ho um, alien knockoffs. Yeah. But are yeah. probably, probably still better than Ridley Scott's modern alien film, Cough. <gasps> what? I loved Covenant. I thought Covenant was great. Um, we won't get into that. No, we won't. We will be here all day. We will yeah. be here all day. <laughs> <laughs> but this is just this is just awful. Score aside, it's a pile of crap. Um, I was hoping for something a bit like to, to to set it up like other video nasties or band films or just the general horrors of that era. You know, stuff. Uh, the stuff actually. I was going to say the stuff. The film. The stuff is great. Or Night of the Comet. But actually, it's a bit more like Deadly Spawn or Eaten Alive or something like that. So if you're familiar with the genre, 
it's not a well thought out, well made film restricted by its budget. It's it is just let's throw some gore and like we'll capitalize on the things that are popular at the moment kind of movie. Exploitation cinema at its worst. Yeah, again, well, yeah. welcome to the turn of the eighties. <laughs> yeah, it was on Shudder. If people are signed up to Shudder and want to give it a go, but I would advise not doing that. There's plenty of other quality films on Shudder to try out before you get anywhere near contamination. Like? Well, they've got Maniac Cop for a start if you want just gruesome exploitation cinema. They've got classic Nigel Neal stuff, you know. Um, The Abominable Snowman is on there. They've got Quatermass Experiment um, if you want classic sci-fi. Uh, yeah, there's, yeah. There's, there's, they've got actually a good selection of horror films, but yeah. Contamination isn't one of them. There those. we go, folks. Bonus recommendations. You get those ones for free. Yes. Um, yes, and that was Contamination. It was. Um, this week I have seen, as well as watching some of the other previous Transformers films... Oh, um, you poor thing. Well, <laughs> I, don't, I don't think we'll cover this later, but I actually like... I actually like Transformers one, I think it's like the first one. I think it's okay. No, yeah, 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 no. Oh, oh, oh no, no. I'll, um, I'll semi defend Transformers one when we get there as well. Uh, um, but worry. but after that, it's just garbage. Yeah. L- actual garbage for the eyes. Mm-hmm. Um, but I watched uh, War Dogs. Oh, the Todd Phillips one, Johnny Hill, Miles yeah, the, Teller. Johnny Hill, Miles. Yeah, and um, I didn't think much of it at all, really. Um, no, no. I, it's based. On, it's based on a true story. Um, about some guys in their mid-twenties who get involved in uh, gun running, which seems to be legal to an extent what they're doing. They're kind of bidding on uh, contracts put up by the US government, um, the kind of smaller contracts that big businesses uh, ignore, and they pick up on it and make a decent amount of money. And it's based on a true story about these guys. How much, I haven't really had time to look into it yet, I only watched the film yesterday, so I don't know how much the film is based in reality. Um, <coughs> uh, yeah, how much of it is true, how much artistic license is used, but it's just a bit nothing. I mean, the film is just it, it, what it like, obviously the, the, the plot moves along. No, you don't really get invested in any of the characters, you don't find out too much about them, their motivations for doing what they're doing. I mean, you do on a surface level, but nothing really deeper. You don't really connect with any of the characters. You don't really care about what happens to them. But you do kind of want to know what happened. In in a lot of ways, I'd have much preferred to have watched a documentary on the subject with some dramatic recreations of some of the things that happened. I think I would have found out a a whole lot more about the actual story and... Um, found it a lot more interesting and informative rather than this film. Yeah, yeah. I, like, like, like I, I saw it when it came out last year and just kind of was like really, like sort of wanting to like it in, mm-hmm. in the sense that I've been waiting for Todd Phillips to actually finally just turn around and stop being shit for like half a decade now. Um, but just like the, the problem is with it mainly is that like old Todd Phillips films that can't help but romanticize the behavior of its utterly horrible, abhorrent, like lead characters. Mm-hmm. Uh, so what, like, so what should instead be like Todd Phillips's version of the Wolf of Wall Street, which I mean, is clearly what he's wanting to try and do. Yeah. Yeah. That's what he's going um, for. Definitely. Yeah. Cause, cause you, or pain you... and gain to use the Michael Bay. Yeah. Um, yeah. Or, actually, yeah. Exactly. Like pain and gain. At... Yeah. 
Sorry, go when on. you look at the poster for this film and you and you see and you know you see the trailer, you think they're going to try. Are they going to try and play this for laughs? Is it going to be kind of like a comedy type? Mm. Like, and it's not. Yeah, it's not even like it's just a bad comedy with bad jokes that don't make you laugh. They don't play it for laughs. Yeah, which is fine, but it just doesn't seem very interesting. A film about two 20-year-olds, a true story about two guys in their 20s who go all around the world de- dealing in arms. They smuggle guns from Italy to Iraq. That should be really interesting. Um, but it's just not. Yeah, like like the, the <laughs> problem with it is, it, um, and this is kind of why a lot of like Wolf of Wall Street wannabes and that there haven't worked, and this is also exactly what I found wrong for Riot Club, is that it is that in order to make one reason why Wolf of Wall Street works is because while it's fun, it's because it manages to walk that fine line between being to be like being aware that everybody involved is awful and yet still being able to be fun at the same time, like like sort of like recognizing that what's happening on screen is wrong whilst at the same time acknowledging there's a kind of perverse thrill to watching these people be horrible. That, or, that. Or, mm-hmm. or perhaps with Wolf of Wall Street, I don't know about other people, you know, watching what they're doing and thinking, yeah, that's pretty bad, but yeah, yeah I'd, I'd fucking love to be doing that. Yeah, yeah, like that's it, because Scorsese understands the allure while also understanding that audiences are smart enough to, to realise what being told is wrong without having to be, like, lectured to or condescended to. And, like, War Dogs, to me, simultaneously doesn't actually seem to have any real moral compass because Todd Phillips films only ever have, like that only have a moral compass is the relationship between the two bros in the center. Um, oftentimes with a kind of like the straight man and then the really horrible per- like person out there is meant to be wacky comedy and that occasionally comes through recognizing just how horrible that person is but mostly just kind of looks at him as a kind of eh, sympathy, mm-hmm. goofy guy. Like The Hangover. Like, like, like Zach Galifianakis' character in The Hangover is a horrible human being and yet he somehow becomes the moral, se- the moral emotional center of that entire universe for reasons that are lost to me. Um, <laughs> well, do you think that War Dogs is kind of like driven mainly by Jonah Hill? Because, yeah. you know, he got a lot of success for his part in Wolf of Wall Street. He got an Oscar nomination, I believe. Yeah, yeah, he for, did. For his role in that. So, I mean, do you think he thought, well, that was fun. Let's do that again. I can do that kind of film again and that'll be received but he successfully. Wa- but he wanted to be the lead in it. But he wanted to be the lead, yeah. Yeah, again, there's that. It's just that, like, like again, like, is it simultaneously doesn't want to have any fun with it, the premise of that there, but also kind of isn't removed far enough to realise that these two people are horrible people who are awful yeah. to each other, and there's no reason why we should be happy about this. You get, like, the worst of both worlds, really. Mm-hmm. Um, and despite Jonah Hill being, like, very, like, magnetic in terms of screen presence and that there, and Miles Teller being okay like it's one of his better hollywood roles because hollywood doesn't know idea what to do with miles teller um uh, nobody does the only thing that he's been good in is whiplash and even then it was a shame for him because he was so completely overshadowed in that. i thought he was good in the spectacular now which coincidentally was on bbc one last night um mm. but like that's another thing for another time uh but, but, <laughs> like outside those it's kind of just like it never seems to figure out what exactly it's trying to do or say. So it just and it and oh and also like old Todd Phillips films is like twenty minutes too fucking long. Um, so. Yeah, it would have worked. It would have worked so much 
better. I think I would have enjoyed it more as 90 minutes. Yeah. Because it's just so bloated. Yeah. Like, like at a certain point, I feel like I just need to give up on Todd Phillips because I, <laughs> like, I used to enjoy his films and that, but, you know, old school road trip, even the Starsky and Hutch movie that kind of fluctuates back and forth in people's quite things like that. But, like, I think specifically since he made The Hangover, he's been on a very horrible, excessively mean-spirited like vibe of extreme bro douchiness that I personally cannot abide and just find kind of repellent. And that this movie, which should have been him actually full-on interrogating that kind of thing, instead he just kind of came to and like shrugged his shoulders and thought, well, I guess if I call out to other better movies, maybe people will be mistaken into believing that this is a movie of interest with something to say. Uh, yeah, um, it just... The ending is, as well, again, I don't know, the ending is based, in fact, what I would suggest very much it's not, so why why put it in there? But I might be wrong on that. The, the, the very end scene, I mean, hmm. uh, with Bradley Cooper's character, I mean, oh, yeah. surely if that happened, you're not going to put it in the film, because that just implicates you in a whole lot of things. But maybe I'm wrong, because I haven't really looked into the, the whole, the truth of everything and the whole backstory of everything. Um, like I said, I, I genuinely think I would have been better off watching a documentary or reading a really good article on the on the situate on the two characters. Well, there is actually one available online. Uh, I had it up just now, and I've shut the page because for some reason I didn't think to <laughs> mention it there. Hang on, allow me to stall for time quickly while I mention that. There. Uh, yeah, um, Arms and the Dudes by Guy Lawson is uh, right. about that. So maybe read that. Um, okay, I haven't read it, but apparently it's quite good. So. Okay, so that was War Dogs and Callum. What have you seen uh, this week? Uh, you're going to you're going to review one new release in this section, aren't yeah, you? Yeah, I'll do that first because Steve really wants to hear about the Book of Henry. <laughs> <laughs> from the from the trailer, I like the idea of it. The trailer gave away pretty much everything. Oh Christ, that trailer was amazing, though, wasn't it? <laughs> just like a role in, in its own. It's technically probably one of the best films of the year, quite like just in terms of like pure emotional reaction, up and down, up and down. Right. Um, so yeah, Book of Henry, which is Colin Trevorrow's new film, Colin Jurassic World, Safety Not Guaranteed, Star Wars Episode Nine, Trevorrow. Um, based on script that has apparently been bouncing around Hollywood since the mid nineties. <laughs> Uh, no, mm-hmm. like since the late 90s uh, by Greg Hurwitz, who's apparently a comic writer. Yep. Yeah, and by the way, it, it feels like it. Like, like it's the kind of film that specifically, like, that when smartphones come up as a phone people go to, it feels, in, like, really out of place since people record things on tape recorders and, like, Polaroids and all that shite. Like, I'm torn between wanting to just recount the plot and actually offer genuine criticism here because I actually sort of love it. <laughs> What? <laughs> like, 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 okay. like, like, both on the ironic car crash level, because this movie is like, objectively, it's bad. It's a bad film. It's a complete mess. Um, like, like, but like, I love that on both like an ironic train crash level and like on a sort of genuine thing, because like the plot for people who don't know, um, stars Jaden Lieberhurt, uh, 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 the kid from Midnight Special, um, as Henry. The main character, Robert, who is the eldest son of single mother um, Susan, played by Naomi Watts, who um, I, I, lives out with um, also a second son, uh, Peter, played by Jacob Tremblay, otherwise known as the kid from Room. Um, Henry is a very, very smart boy. Um, like, a very, you'd say gifted, but he prefers the term precocious, as he says in actual dialogue that is spoken by human beings in this film. 
Mm-hmm. Um, he is a wizard school, absurdly popular with all the kids and that there, constructs a giant elaborate Rube Goldberg machines in his spare time. I did just think you just said he was at wizard school then. Um, that honestly would not be too much of a stretch given this movie. <laughs> Anyways, but yeah, um, he speaks He speaks in grand philosophy. He, like he's already an expert in philosophy. He... He he plays the stock market on out, like using the payphone outside of his like out like outside of his school plays chess against teachers and wins, and effectively controls the entire finances and everything of his family in that there. So that allows Susan to essentially act like a child who gets to sit basically, at home and play video games every day. Basically, uh, if, you, if he was one of your friend's kids, you'd hate him. Yeah, you would. Like like you'd literally, really hate him. Like the Carpenter family in that there are all perfectly well off because Henry has purposely kept all control of their finances finances of their pay slips stock market controls 401ks everything he's such a wizard he essentially allows naomi watts to sit and play gears of war all day every day <laughs> that is not a joke that's a real thing that happens and you better believe naomi watts gives some fine fake video game act playing acting there oh boy um he's uh like naomi watts best friend is an alcoholic played by sarah silverman who who like to who who is basically the newman to henry seinfeld <laughs> Uh, Newman. Like, I'm yeah. not kidding. They both have like a genuine like sparring back and forth kind of like faux hatred thing, but they even spell out at one point of we're just pretending to hate each other because we don't because we don't want to admit our true feelings for one another. It's fucking ridiculous. Yeah. Right. They live next door to Dean Norris, who is the police commissioner um and stepfather to a girl called Christina, who Henry is very sweet on. However, Henry through just uh, however, Henry finds out through just General deduction, as in of a general demeanor, of not even not even having spoken a single word to Christina at all that here, that Dean Norris is sexually abusing her. But he can't do any. But nobody can do anything about it because Dean Norris is the police commissioner, the child protective services. You know, the, you know uh, are there. They're headed up by his brother, and nobody else believe, and nobody at all seems to believe Henry, the, like the giant whiz kid who they otherwise take the word at everything about there that somebody is being abused in that there. So Henry decides to construct an elaborate plan to have so, to have Glenn killed with a sniper rifle, a high power sniper rifle with a silencer. But before a very detailed step by step plan, but before he can enact it, and this is the big twist for all the trailers hid, in case you're wondering that here, but it happens within like 20 minutes, so I'm going to tell you anyway, he has a brain aneurysm and dies. Oh. Hmm. <laughs> yeah. That, is, that, that comes out of nowhere, doesn't it? <laughs> well, no, no, it ha- no, he, no, he has the aneurysm and then he die, like, and then spends 20 minutes in hospital putting together all the rest of his plan and finances of that verse, but then he can leave the detailed instructions for Naomi Watts to follow through the plan to kill Dean, to kill Dean Norris. Uh, well, I, I, I forgot to mention as well, by the way, he puts together this entire plan, like this entire very detailed step-by-step to the second plan in, in, in the space of one night before he has his aneurysm, and then records every, all the step-by-step instructions to tape with exact timings, which he, where he's even able to know that, that Naomi Watts will go down the wrong, like, the wrong corner at one point, so he needs to correct her. It's, it's like, okay, right, like this movie is mad, obviously mm-hmm. it's also kind of actually like good like like if you strip away the madness like the absolute madness makes of a plot um that there like the actual like by which i mean the child molestation stuff that there what you actually have here is kind of an interesting deconstruction of that kind of like precocious child prodigy film um you know there was ones that other people play shit oh what's those did any of you watch gifted two weeks ago no 
No, no. Don't okay, think right. So. Be glad it's insufferable because I watched that before the book of Henry. Might as well. But, you know, like that that kind of your like special child about there, like Rain Man child who's, who knows everything, sees everything, is very precocious and la di da di da. This is basically kind of a deconstruction of that, um, of situa of watching somebody about there, of uh, like of looking about there and reminding you forcefully of this is a child. Their kind of morality is like all skew about there and how fucking weird it is for them to be like that in control in that kind of way. But it's also aiming to be like like an examination of the trials of single parenthood, you know, of grief. I mean, also the idea of like patriarch, of traditional patriarchal family dynamics, you know, like the father figure controlling everything about there. But humorously juxtaposed by said father figure being the 11-year-old son. <laughs> um, like, sort of like a boss baby, like bo- the concept of boss baby. Yeah, like, yeah, being that, that. Yeah, except well, in the original storybook version instead of the um, film version, which turned into a metaphor for capitalism. Um like, and it's all mm-hmm. play. like, honestly, it's all told, like, so earnestly, so straight-faced, in a way, with, like, like with a whole load of cast, like, with very talented cast who are all trying their hardest, the exception of Dean Norris, who really doesn't, like, he'd rather be anywhere else. Um, like, trying to start, but it almost sort of circles back round to being legit, like, to legitimately working, like, like, in what it's trying to do. I mean, it doesn't. For the record, it doesn't. Because, like, and it's because... Uh, well, for one, all the paedophile mm. neighbor stuff is just like so aesthetically not thought through in the slightest. Mm-hmm. Um, what's especially good as well is that like it only shows up for like two minutes, like like that whole Fred Lee just shows up like two minutes before um, Henry gets his brain tumor, um, like as if like it's there, as if like oh shit, we need to set this up now so that we can do that sudden pivot in the final third. Um, but then also like it's just. It's just dreadful, it really is. Um, like the actual screenplay is ineptly written. Um, with like so like, with all the characters just refuse to speak in any way mm. that relates to a human being. Um and like and like scene construction construction and structure map there is just really, really poor. Uh, the tone is wildly indecisive. Um, for some reason the finale keeps cutting back between a humorous talent show and Naomi Watts getting ready to kill Dean Novice. Um, I think there's meant to be some kind of tension in there. It doesn't work in that kind of structure. Oh, and also the fact that Trevorrow cannot direct for shit. Like, like, I, like, I, re- like, I like Jurassic World uh, more than most other people. Even also recognise that it's not really a good film, like by normal metrics. Uh, but I absolutely do get now, now why he's like why most people say he's a bad director. He, for one, there's that issue that a lot of directors mm-hmm. have nowadays, where they seem to simultaneously overtell with their direction and not tell enough. You know, I have a kind of direction about that where they cut between things and have characters do stuff, but not um, to such that it makes sense if you think about why somebody's doing something, but it doesn't sync up until after it's done, or if somebody like throws a line afterwards when it's done and that tells you something about that. Like think of like many of the late latter day pirates of the Caribbean movies, for example, Matt Bear, like there's that. Um but also just like again, just his direction. He cannot do tension. He like he can't create any tension mm-hmm. at all. Mm-hmm. Um many of his actual scene constructions about that are all over the place, tone awful. Like I mean, it's it's very difficult. It's a very difficult movie to direct anyway. Like I'm not really sure if anybody could have truly made it work. But Trevorrow just turns out to be very, very bad at this. Um so anybody worrying about Star Wars, you can feel free to continue worrying because he's not a good director, but you know, maybe a material. But like the fact is, the book Henry is like an unholy Frankensteining of like four different mediocre indie dramas, like into this one deformed, be- like being of monstrosity. And whilst all four of them on their own would have been objectively better movies, 
I don't think I would have enjoyed any of them as much as like this one, as much as like this freak of nature. Because like, God help me, give me a batshit entertaining train wreck over an incivilly boring slot pile any day of the week. Y- you know, like like mm. it it's tries. I'm I'm. I think I only sort of get what it's trying, but it tries at least, which is more than I can say for a lot, like for like fucking gifted or whatever. Um, so yeah, that's Book of Henry. Uh, if anybody does put that down as worst film of the year, they're not being honest with themselves. I, I will put that down right now. But uh, well, without even watching it, I can tell you there's probably one that we're going to talk about on this very yeah. podcast. That'll yeah, be t- yeah. But like, that's so. what I mean. Like, like people are genuinely like, giving that zero stars, and that, but I don't think they're really understanding what like metric of a properly bad film is nowadays. And that, uh, like, like it's the entertaining mm. kind of bad. Um, even if I feel like it could probably actually have been slightly crazy. But anyhow, the film I actually want to talk about, I'm going to have to do this very quick because I inadvertently spent too long on Book of Henry, uh, was um, I watched The Skeleton Twins in the 90 minutes before we yanked off of Netflix again this mm-hmm. week. I've heard good things about Skeleton Twins. Lots of people... I think we had Brian on here a while back who said that it was really good. Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm going to put it down this way right now. If it weren't for Bill Hader and Kristen Wiig being as fantastic as they are... I would have found this insufferable. Um, that, that was not meant to be a dramatic pause. I'm just trying to stop burping into the mic. Um, <laughs> okay. Like, it is, is the... The problem is, is that it's very, very well-meaning. Like, it's a very well-meaning indie film that cannot stop desperately, be, like, smushing, like, being an indie film. If that makes sense. Like, um, like, if any, like, if any of you watched um, Jeff Who Lives at Home, the Duplass Brothers movie, I haven't. No. Is that the one with um... Jason Segel and Ed Helms? Yes. Yes, yeah. I've seen that. It's very good. Yeah. Like, like I constantly went back and forth on whether I was liking it or not because for every scene that feels real and honest with like genuinely likable characters and actual like I wanted to say, there's a ridiculously out of nowhere um, faux profundity scene or like that entire bit of the ending, you know, the um, the act, like the motorway pile up and all that stuff from that there and just like like in ways where it kind of just where it pushes against itself into trying to become something a lot faker like faker manufactured and manufactured than the like small scale story is that's kind of what i found with skeleton twins in the for moments when it's actually focusing on hader and wig and them together and the film about depression um, like chronic miserable beating down depression um, suicidal tendencies and um, how life circum how the kind of dead end circumstances and an and inability to find some kind of happiness in what is objectively like a nice life and that there wears you down and how you can still have like familial connections that can help bring you through. When it's on that, it's really really good, um, really really good, really really affecting. Um, especially because Hayda and Wig on like career redefining performances here. Um, well, Kristen Wig obviously, because this was a point when she transitioned from making comedies to being more of a indie dramedy actress, and Bill Hader instead of went off and did Voices in the Power Rangers movie. Uh, <laughs> it's a waste of his. That's a waste of his talents. But he's fantastic here. Uh, also, really good here, Luke Wilson, who is normally just really distracting for me in movies for some reason, but he's really good here. He's like the kind-hearted um, lunk. Like, like the kind-hearted, good-natured lunk um, who plays Wick, uh, Kristen Wiig's husband. The problem is, though, is that the movie can't stop piling on all these other indie movie tropes on here. Now, um, 
like not just in you know like the kind of direction of you know excessive soft focus um gently strummed soundtracks of acoustic guitars and then and then subplots involving statutory rape and sex addiction and cheating on spouses and the inevitable attempted suicide scene uh but it's visualized on screen for the climax obviously um Incidentally, by the way, um, just as a brief sidebar here, the reason I, I have been thinking about this recently because I, uh, of course, I saw Christine at the London Film Festival. Fantastic movie, mm-hmm. available on DVD now. You should all go watch it. Um, and how that ends with the suicide, um, like, and actually shows it. And I've been trying to think ever since, like, because the Skeleton Twin suicide sequence of that here really annoys me. Like, it really deep down annoys me on, like, a visceral level. And I was trying to figure out why that happened, but when Christine did it, I was okay. And I think it all comes down to delivery. Like, Christine's entire movie is building up to the suicide attempt in the same way that Skeleton Twins is building up to the suicide attempt, you know, for its finale in that there. But Christine kind of treats it with, like, genuine respect. It's, it's The whole movie is about showing you how she got to that specific point to feel like that suicide was the only thing she had left. And the actual act itself is not romanticized or glamorized or played for, like, for additional drama out there. Like, the suicide happens, and then, it, and then it shifts focus to showing just how horrifying the act is, how much it affects other people and all that kind of stuff. When Skeleton Twins does it, it does it purely because it's for finale and we need some kind of redemptive beat. Um, like, like there's a tactlessness to it there. In the same way, in the same way, again, that it throws, like again, that it throws in its statutory rape subplots, its bits about sex addiction, um, all that stuff from that there. Like, it just kind of throws it in and treats it as nothing more than added drama required for a finale, um, if that makes sense. And that's ultimately what I kind of find wrong about it is, is that like it's simultaneously trying so very, very, very hard to be respectful towards its subjects, like like towards everything it's touched on, but it can't help but make a giant pig's ear of the whole thing. Um, and that if it weren't for Hader and Wig and those occasional individual scenes, which are mostly separate from all the other bullshit for the rest of the film, um, the movie would be genuinely insufferable. But because of those two and how like and they're pure. Like, like, and the life and the strength and the emotional investment they put into that, um, that, that, that like, they put into the script that won't meet them halfway. Uh, it, it turned into something that kind of almost worked, but ultimately doesn't, and that just kind of hurts me more. I, again, because of my own um, issues with depression, um, I've got my clinical depression out there, I kind of, I take stories like this a lot harder than maybe other people do out there. But, um, like, it, but it does mean that when they miss... Like, but when they hit, like with Bojack Horseman or something, or Christina out there, like I, I connect them on a real deep visceral level with a huge, like with a huge appreciation. And when they miss, like with, say, the Skeleton Twins, or I haven't watched it, but everything I've heard about 13 Reasons Why just makes it sound like the most triggering, horrific garbage, like on this planet, like possible. Um, like I get a real, like, visceral hate on like a deep like offense on a deep down level because of my own struggles with that kind of thing um again it's well-meaning but it can't help but unfortunately it just kind of makes a pig's ear of it because it can't focus enough to do it properly amazingly well acted though okay that was the skeleton twins megatron must be stopped no matter the cost a couple of new releases to look at now uh the first of which is Trans Fivemas Five, The Last Night <laughs> Five, um, which 
we've all seen, and let's just get out of the way now. It's unmitigated shite. Yeah. Yep, very well I put. Mean, that is the, the review. Right, let's, move, let's move on, everybody. We're done here. Well, We're done here. Pack it up. <laughs> well, no, we are almost done. I mean, Michael Bay, I've liked some of his work, mostly his earlier work, um, but he's just dived off a cliff of quality and landed in a cesspit of awful films. Yeah, of his own making. I mean, it's a cesspit full of his own yeah. shit. Well, I mean, like, um, uh, it's just I was just thinking this uh, earlier. M. Night Shyamalan. Shyamalan. However you say it. He, he, yeah, that's him. He, his earlier work I liked, and then he got worse and, and didn't do some, didn't do such good work. And then he did Switch, which I love. Split. Maybe Michael Bay's got a Switch. Split. Split, sorry. <laughs> maybe, <laughs> yeah, maybe, maybe Michael Bay has got a split in him. I mean, he did. It was called Pain and Gain. It was really, really good. Uh, yeah, I was going to say. And The Rock, I suppose, was his earlier like, one. Got, yeah, you know yeah. the rock is the one everyone loves, and then it was like basically anything between the rock mm. and paint and gain is shit, and everything apparently after that. Is I'd like shit. Uh, like, like I, I, I mean, Steve, Steve, you, you about to say that Transformers one was actually quite good, weren't you? Yeah, I did, I did, I did think Transformers the first one was okay. It kind of did what it needed to do. One of the biggest problems with the earlier Transformers films. All the Transformers seemed to be the same colour, so you couldn't tell who was it in who. I mean, you still can't, because they're all terribly designed CGI monstrosities. But I, They do look a bit better now than they used well, they basically, to. They basically made all the good guys different colours, like bright colours, yeah. and all the bad guys grey. Yeah. And whilst that, yeah, well, yeah. like they look different, but that doesn't help now that direction's just a biz. We'll get to like Incomprehensible. Yeah, oh yeah, oh yeah. I'll, I will get to the incomprehensibility. Yeah. <laughs> but like, like... With, with, with this, like, like the first one, like, I mean, Michael Bay has never gotten the Transformers. Let's just give it out away. Michael Bay has never mm-hmm. gotten Transformers. Transformers is the tale of a boy in his car. Like, it's like a metaphor boy in his car. And then there's all that bullshit lore around it, which kind of works because you have that grounding human element. Michael Bay has only ever seen it as a disaster movie. Mm. Like, like, yeah, that's the thing. Michael Bay has only ever seen these as disaster movies for whatever yeah. reason. But Transformers 1... I mean, it's a bad film, I find. But it almost works because it's the one that actually most closely has that boy in his car thing instead of drowning itself in law bullshit. Um, and now that, arguably, ever since now Shia LaBeouf's gone, uh, we've, it's now just become nothing but law bullshit. As, uh, mm-hmm. this, this, but just like this is... I sat down um, to watch this, and I mean, I was dreading it, obviously. Why wouldn't I? But I also was... I, I, for, for an hour and a half, I was trying like I was trying, I was I was trying not just to like it. I was also trying to understand what the fuck was going on. This well, on that on that point, I think <laughs> the three of us and many people we've spoken to about this film have struggled with the plot and to understand what was happening throughout the film. It seemed to be from talking to you all before this and reading people's tweets that nobody knew what was happening in the plot. So. I have got up. I don't care if I spoil this for people because the, if I if one person doesn't go and see this film because I've spoiled it, <laughs> it's a service. I've done. I've mankind. done the world a service. I, I mean, I, I, so I mean, the I real do, public service here is that you're about to explain to reveal to us what actually happened in that movie yeah, to try and ultimately make sense of the utter migraine, but just like the pure yes. migraine that happens. So go on. Well, I've I've gone onto the Wikipedia page for the film and I'm going to read out the plot to you verbatim from the Wikipedia page. Exactly what it says. Hang on, let, me so, give, let me give myself some hot cocoa here. Here we go. Yeah. Yes. 
to, to, this is how the Wikipedia page starts. Transformers 5, The Last Knight. In 484 AD, King Arthur's wizard Merlin forges an alliance with the Knights of Iacon, a group of 12 Transformers who have hidden on Earth. The Knights have given Merlin an alien staff and combine into a dragon to help Arthur triumph over the Saxons. I, I can't remember my GCSE history too much, <laughs> but I don't really think you needed a robot dragon to defeat. The I mean, Saxon. I mean, but, I mean, there was all. I mean, but, I mean, in the Dark Ages, there were apparently also giant explosions, um, mm. which it was surprising. Oh, and this entire sequence basically just stopped for like a minute and a half. So Stanley Tucci could do some drink, can do some drunk ad living for some reason. Is Stanley Tucci best pals with Michael Bay or something? Because he was also in the last one. As well. He was yeah, doing and... a completely different kind of character, yeah, with no link mentioned between them. He's just recast Danny Tucci in a role. He's all, so he, he is anyone. He's also only in the movie for that one scene. Is fourth build, whilst the female lead, who is actually important, has relevance to the plot, is but is shunted to that kind of and also starring list that comes after, like the main and titles. Are you and and as good an actor and as well regarded as Danny Tucci may be. Are the kind of people who are going to enjoy and want to go and see a Transformers film is really going to see a Transformers film because Stanley Tucci... For 90 seconds. No, no, no. Not at all. No one's going Um, to see this film because they want something that, you know, the film is advertising in terms of the poster, in terms of the trailer. People go to this because it's Transformers and they've already sat through four of them. Yeah, you know, there's there's like an people like snidely going to mock it and then deride it so we can write a review and do a podcast. Or there are people, there were people in my in the, the cinema screening when I was there who genuinely seemed to enjoy this kind of shit. Yeah, I I got yeah I have had to, like I could hear laughter at many lines despite yeah. the fact that there was I I could I couldn't see jokes mainly because uh, yeah, mainly because yeah exactly <laughs> yeah mainly because like the editing of this movie that like there are bits where the dialogue just sort of like runs over each other like all, all mm. like no break like so the editing. We'll get back to Steve's plot in a minute. I just need to like, like this movie yeah. is fucking incoherent. Like it's literally incoherent, and not just in the usual way that like Michael Bay, like, like Michael Bay's Transformers movies have been, or even Thirteen Hours, which I thought was actually yeah. incoherent for the first hour, and then finally settled down for the second hour. But like this is incoherent from start to finish. Um, like scenes just kind of change on a whim. Characters get from point A to point Q to point Z at certain points for no reason. Like plots well, dropping yeah, out. Considering, sorry, carry on. And so, so like plots drop in and out randomly in that there. Like the opening minute, like the opening hour goes through like 17 different main characters and plots and threads. And then and then eventually Auntie Hopkins shows up and both like and both our lead characters both go, Can somebody please tell me what the hell is going on? I and I felt like yeah. screaming out, Yes, please, somebody, anybody, well, what the fuck is going on? They they did exactly the same thing in Revenge of the Fallen when they just stop the plot suddenly to have that big plane dude start explaining what's happened, yeah. what's happening now, and what's going to happen in the oh, end. Because otherwise you'd have well, had no clue. Yeah. To carry on with the, with the plot and what's going on, mm-hmm. we then skip to the present day. In the present day, most of the governments on Earth have declared Transformers illegal, and the Multinational Transformer Reaction Force, brackets TRF, has been formed to eliminate all alien robots. Which was also a plot of the last film, abs- just for a record. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Despite the absence of, Optim- absence of Optimus Prime, uh, in brackets, who left the planet to search for his creator, new Transformers continue to arrive regularly. The newest ship to arrive crash lands in Chicago, where it is ground by a group of children. When a TRF mecha confronts the kids, they are saved by Isabella, a survivor of the Battle of Chicago, and her Transformer companions, Squeaks and Canopy. 
but Canopy is killed by TRF in the process. Bumblebee and Cade Yeager arrive and help them escape. <laughs> Yeager is unable to save the Transformer, Steelbane, in the ship. Before he dies, Steelbane attaches a metallic talisman to Yeager's body, uh, an act observed by Decepticon Barricade, who reports to his leader. Where Megatron. did Barricade even come from? Just like as a question, just that was, well, just he one was point where he just, dead. Yeah, like, like, like not even that. Like that was just a point where he just suddenly showed up, like in a random shot somewhere during that whole experience. It's like, wait, where is he? What's he going on? Is he good? What, what's what? Where? What? Like he just kind of showed up at one point, just randomly in a shot, and then Megatron was also just around the corner somewhere. Somehow, just negotiating with them, and they're just like, "Yeah, yeah, sure, you can have all these people." Oh yeah, the bit Why? Where, oh yeah, the bit where Michael Bay just does Suicide Squad for five, for two for five minutes for no reason. Uh, but like, all... even like that's not explained either, is it? No, no, it's, it's not. not. It's just like he's suddenly negotiating with them because he's got some hostages that we didn't see happen. I, I, like I feel like I feel like that entire sequence is either. Hasbro stopping the movie for five minutes to go and look at these brand new toys, kiddies, that you can get in stores yeah. right now. Ching, ching, ching. But also, uh, but like, but also as if like Michael Bay had watched Suicide Squad last year and taken it as like a personal offense. It's like, oh, 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 you, oh, oh, you think you, think you can out incoherent barrel scrape me, good sirs? Well, <laughs> you, well, allow me to prove you wrong. Mm. Oh god! What about well, the, as- the aspect ratio? As- sorry, as- I-, I just have to complain about the aspect ratio. The aspect ratio. It was awful. Yeah, yeah. Like what? I-, I get that it's made for IMAX, but every single shot changes the aspect ratio in yep. some way, and it's fucking. It drove me up the goddamn wall. And like, like if mm-hmm. I either shoot the whole film in IMAX or make the film in one fucking aspect ratio. Stop going between. It's it's it it, it indicates just general sloppiness and non-existent this is probably the most like this is the most hysterically sloppy movie i have ever seen a major studio put out like i don't think i've actually seen a blockbuster that's le- that is not that is like so badly made than this yeah. and it was something to do with he did he used two um IMAX cameras simultaneously as well. He was shooting everything on two IMAX cameras, and apparently most of and apparently most of them weren't in the same aspect ratio as one another. Yeah. So it's just like it's well, not even like it's artistic license. It's just bad. It's just it's just six, badly made. Six fucking editors, which makes yeah. sense given how that movie like like for, on like on both a giant like on the macro level of you know plot on the yeah. micro level of scenes on the like on, like from scenes sequences line even even individual shots nothing mm. makes any sense here it is absolutely incoherent it's 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 not a film this is not a yeah, film there's, it, wow. I, there's no continuity yeah, either like, like you watch like the it's clearly it's made by someone who has no clue about the geography of oh the country God, no, they're no, sitting no. there filming <laughs> one minute they're driving under the bridge of size and the next minute big ben is in the background it's like well are you in oxford or are you in london oh it's all the fucking same isn't it it's all just the uk no one who's going to see this film who we're aiming this towards really gives a shit they just see old buildings yeah, yeah, like, like I, I feel like I've kind of inadvertently um, taken the power of this is not a film away from the statement from the few times I've used it of like fantastic, like fantastic and entourage and all that stuff in my head. But this genuinely is not a film to me. This is nine thousand vines smushed together and played one after another at maximum volume for two and a half hours instead of an actual film. It's it's not a film. It's a two hundred and seventeen million dollar migraine inducer, and I honestly don't know whether I find it hysteric, like like whether I kind of have a sort of admiration for this 
um, an anger for it wasting my time or whether Michael Bay has just inadvertently created some kind of like post film type thing. It's mad. It's mad. Uh, yeah. So uh, where do we get to? On the far reaches of the solar system, Optimus Prime discovers that the Transformers homeworld Cybertron now disassembled into pieces is heading directly for Earth. Optimus finds that being in control of Cybertron's movement, a sorceress named Quintessa, who professes to be the maker he is searching for. The staff which the Knights gave to Merlin was stolen from Quintessa, and using her powers, she places Optimus under her control and charges him with recovering it. Earth, she reveals, is actually Cybertron's ancient enemy, Unicron, and she intends to drain his life force so that Cybertron can be restored. I was going to ask, though, you know this dragon thing, right? The, the three-headed hydra dragon robot thing yeah i haven't um, got to uh, is that made up of the knights yeah, who are transformers yeah they transform into that i i explained I that so. in the first paragraph oh, i'm sorry so i mean if you <laughs> no wonder you didn't know what was going on in this film you can't even follow this um the one thing is now i can't quite remember right in the in the um the fourth film right at the beginning you saw some alien spaceships come to Earth and started terraforming, and they had like weird little alien hands. You didn't see the aliens properly, except the little weird alien hands, but they weren't robot hands. Has that ever come back? Nah. Why would it? Nah. That would that would suggest again continuity between the films. Yes. Maybe they made Unicron or something. Mm. I don't. I anyway. don't know. This isn't. This is a movie that seems to believe that Starscream betrayed uh, Megatron at some point when he never mm. has. So T- TRF member and former Autobots ally William Lennox brokers a deal between the TRF and Megatron, releasing from their custody a squad of Decepticons who will help Megatron recover the talisman from Jaeger. So hang on, hang on, hang on, hang on, hang on. Who's Lennox? Is that the generic white guy the film kept focusing on so much, just by the fact we had no character or anything to do, and I was expected to somehow know who? him? Which what? Lennox, the white army guy who kept. Being in all the action oh, scenes, it was in it more. Yeah. Than, it was in it than more than most Transformers. Um, yeah. Oh, it also got more showers. William, William Lennox was played by Josh Duhamel. Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. Him, yeah, that that guy. You know, yeah. that guy of talent and repute. I oh, think Duhamel. It might be Dumble. Oh yeah. Oh, and, oh, and also Glenn Morshower plays himself. Mm. I don't um, know why. <laughs> the Decepticons hunt Jaeger to his junkyard hideout in South Dakota, where he and many of the surviving Transformers are holed up. During the chaos of the ensuing battle, Jaeger is approached by Cogman, the Transformer envoy of British Lord Sir Edmund Burton. Played by Anthony Hopkins. Yes, played by Anthony Hopkins. The other guy. Yeah, who takes him and Bumblebee to England to meet his master. There, Jaeger also meets Vivian Wembley, an Oxford professor who Burton has had the Autobot Hot Rod kidnap. Burton explains that he is the last living member of the Wit Wiccan Order. I remember Wit Wiccan. Wit Wiki was the surname of Shia LaBeast character in the first three films. God, I can feel brain cells dying right now. Yeah. Uh, It's almost as boring to hear it again as it was watching it. I just can't. An ancient brotherhood dedicated to guarding the secret history of Transformers on Earth. He also reveals that Vivian is the last descendant of Merlin and must find a new star (laughs) to prevent the impending destruction of Earth by Cybertron. I'll, I'll carry on. Uh, <laughs> Why not? I'm, ne- I'm nearly, I'm nearly done. Fling the t- TRF, Jaeger and Wembley. F- Why such an English name, Wembley? It's not even got the e on it. It's just Wem- Wembley. Uh, follow clues left by the latter's father that led them, Bumblebee and Cogman. Why? Oof. Just why give clues? Just make it easy. 
be over. I, 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 I think Bumblebee I think Michael Bay wanted to make an Indiana Jones movie. It sounds I like, doesn't mm. it? This this could there's really two contenders for the, the worst film to have King Arthur in this year. <laughs> but uh, I, hey, I hey, come on, come on, come on, come on. Guy, Guy Ritchie's film is at least a film. Okay, yeah. that's yeah. that. Come on, and uh, and Cogman takes a submarine, HMS Alliance, into the sea to find a Cybertronian knight sunken ship in which they discover the Tomb of Merlin and the staff. Wembley activates the staff and the ship rises to the surface. The TRF arrives to confront the group. Several knights awaken and attack them. The attack is cut short by the arrival of the mind-controlled Optimus, now dubbed Nemesis Prime. But fortunately, when the normally mute Bumblebee is finally able to speak, the sound of his voice is enough to break Prime free of Contessa's control. Bubba record, Bubba record, by the way. This is treated as if it's a giant payoff to some kind of huge character arc between the two through some kind mm. of plot as if as if some kind as if this has been happening either throughout the franchise i don't think the two have actually like communicated that much throughout the franchise other than again i can't remember much of these even though i've seen all five of them but at least in this movie it's treated as some kind like the snapping out of that there and their eventual kind of friendship is treated as if it's the end of some kind of huge character arc out there between the two like a huge relationship rekindling despite the fact that these two do not communicate with each other until Optimus Prime returns and the Optimus Prime is out of this movie for two hours. Mm-hmm. And then he, and he shows doesn't transform off. either. No, no. You know, what's the, what's the, isn't this like meant to be selling toys? There's one point, there's one point where he disappears and just says that he's going to fight the, fight a way through for them that they like to get them into the big, you know, like, thing. Yeah. he just disappears for like 15 minutes and, is as if I am supposed to all have faith in him or something in that there. And just, we're, getting, just, we're getting there. Uh, we're getting there. Uh, a, mo- a moment later, Megatron arrives to steal the stuff. He too has been working for Quintessa all along. As Megatron flees with his prize, the knights attack Optimus for his betrayal. But Jaeger, whose talisman becomes a sword Excalibur for some reason, because King Arthur was in he it. Could, at the start, he could, because Mark Wahlberg needs his ego stroking even more, apparently. Uh, so- he, with his Excalibur sword, he stops the fight, realizing he is the last knight. The knights yield to Jaeger, who urges Optimus to protect the Earth once more. So that's a bit of it. Um, and then Tony up. Hale shows up and says, "Magic is stupid. We need to use science to fix this." Mm. Um, Megatron delivers the staff to Quintessa, who begins training the life force of Earth slash Unicron via Stonehenge, because obviously. When the military intervenes, Megatron shoots Burton, who dies with Cogman at his side. Ah, isn't that nice? Using a ship procured... It doesn't say that on Wikipedia. I added that bit. Using a ship (laughs) procured by the Autobot Day Trader. Never heard of him. The Autobots arrive to join the fight, landing on Cybertron and battling... Oh, oh, oh. Sorry, that's Steve Buscemi's character. Right. They didn't didn't say it was him who gave it to him in the Mm. film, but so, like, a ship just shows up at one point, and they're like, okay, I guess we're going to go join the fight, but it's apparently going on somewhere. Oh, and also, whilst this is happening, Hong Kong's wiped off the map. Nobody cares. No. Like, like, I cannot say, like, audience... It's not even mentioned on Wikipedia about Hong Kong. I cannot even mention, like, audience-wise. Like, in the film, Hong Kong, which is where the entire last, last third of Age of Extinction took place, and which... Which stopped, let's not forget as well, so that China could step in and advertise itself by saying that we will always protect our Hong Kong brethren is wiped off the face of the map and nobody cares. Just mm. Hong uh, Kong gets a title card, by the way, and then it immediately uh, cuts uh, to the pyramids and there's no title card. But- anyway, we land, we're landing on Cybertron and battling against the Decepticons and Quintessa's Infernicons. 
Optimus and his Rotor no Autobots, well. backed up by the knights in their dragon form, uh, vanquish their many foes. Optimus defeats Megatron, while Bumblebee appears to slay Quintessa. Wembley removes the star, stopping Cybertron's destruction of Earth, but leaving the two planets connected, Optimus declares that humans and Transformers must work together to rebuild their worlds and sends a message calling any Autobots to come home. This also, by the way, skips out the fact that that Isabella girl also shows up during the finale. She shows up, somebody asks her, what are you doing here? And even she says, I don't know. Yeah, you've got a family now. See you later. Yeah, <laughs> like, like, she, like, she genuinely gets, she shows up in a place she's not supposed to. Somebody asks her, how did you get here? And she answers, I don't know. In hmm. a mid credit scene, scientists inspect one of the horns of Unicron, which is extended out of the desert. Quintessa, who has survived and is disguised as a human, arrives and offers them a way to destroy Unicron. Ah, I see. They're finally paying off that one subplot in Transformers, Revenge of the Fallen, that made no fucking sense. Yes. Uh, The end. That was Transformers 5. Don't watch Transformers, please. No. Please. I I genuinely drove home with a massive thumping headache after watching that. It um, was awful. We've done Transformers 5. Now, we've got some fun out of it with with that. but let's talk about Baby Driver, which was uh, or is, which is the uh, new Edgar Wright directed film starring Ansel Elgort, Ansel Elgort. Um, uh, Kevin Spacey, uh, uh, Jamie Foxx, John Hamm, and, and others. Um, and in my opinion, was just brilliant. Just, yep. Yep. It's, it's very rare that you get films out of Hollywood now that genuinely have a modicum of originality, and this was one of them. I'm loving the shade you're throwing Bayformer's way, Steve. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But th- this was genuinely brilliant. It was, it was fun. Yeah. It was funny. Uh, it was exciting. The car chases were really well put together. Uh, for for, for the, the plot, for anyone who doesn't know, it's, it's uh, about a, a getaway driver called Baby who has a love for music but also has to listen to music all the time because of an accident his childhood gave him tinnitus um, and the music helped drain it out. Um, and then, yeah. as you can expect, things don't go according to plan. Yeah, um, it's, yeah it's a 70s crime movie plot, but, you know, the kind-hearted, uh, you know, like, the talented driver is a good soul stuck in a bad world of crime through bad circumstances, for one last jobs, the... Bene- the seemingly benevolent but actually very you know like scary and authoritative father figure boss Kevin Spacey the sweet girl the heart of gold who sweeps our kid off his feet with dreams of the open road and just like like it's all that it's like like it's good for record about here like the plot about it's good about that but I also need to say it's irrelevant in a way it's, it's, the, it's the music and the soundtrack and the way that it's incorporated yeah. into the film yeah. um, that makes it work I mean I think I read that or I heard an interview with with Jamie Fox on the radio, and he was saying how Edgar Wright would say he would he would look he would know how long the scene was going to be. He would then pick a song to fit that scene, and then he would build the scene and what happened in it around the song. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like like so that that's why like Baby Driver is a car chase musical. Mm-hmm. Right? Like like it, it is, and was and again like as I mentioned, there is a plot. There are incredibly well-written characters, fantastic performances, brilliant direction. Like, seriously, Edgar Wright is one of our best working action directors, um, which this film should you know, make perfectly clear. And it's also, like, and also all that is basically irrelevant in a way. Like, like, like it's still there. It's great in that there. But it's kind of irrelevant to what Baby Driver mainly is, which is a giant love letter to music. 
and specific and whilst and whilst it's also like nostalgic music in that vein, like in the same way like World's End was about nostalgia, um, it's also specifically very much in the now kind of music, the way we listen to music nowadays. That like in theory, because I mentioned this in my written review, which you can find over calmpatch.com. Yes, I wrote again for once. Um uh, but like in theory, because this movie is basically wall-to-wall needle drops, like there is rarely a scene going on where there's not some kind of licensed song playing in the background. Um in theory, that should be utterly like it like irritating. Like it should be like Suicide Squad. You know, like like the opening Suicide Squad, mm-hmm. where that just played like twenty like five different songs one after the other and that there were no breaks or anything in that there. But instead it works for two reasons. The first is the breadth and variety for songs. Um, I mean it's it's a fantastic soundtrack for record. Of course it is. It's an Edgar Wright movie. But it's for breadth and variety. Like if Suicide Squad was like an insane, like like an insufferable egotist going bragging about how amazing their music collection, amazing obscure their music collection, despite their music collection consists entirely of greatest hits CDs from every single one of the artists on Rolling Stones' um, 500 greatest songs of all time list, um, or you know like flicking through any rock AM station at any time that there that plays only the best classic rock and roll standards. Um, like Baby Driver has variety and spades everywhere. Like it's not. Yeah, like like uh, like every scene flits between um like you can have hip hop in one scene, soul in the next, classic rock, modern rock, all that kind of stuff. If there's a pop if there's a more name brand artist in there, then you can guarantee there'll be a more obscure pick that will fit the scene perfectly, but also might not be one you might recognize. Like for example, when was the last time either of you thought of the Tyrannosaurus Rex incarnation of T of Mark Bolin instead of T Rex? Or Trex. Um, Trex, yeah. I was gonna say. Yeah, or or Blur's intermission. <laughs> soundtracking a botched robbery like like the bit that's that's stapled onto the end of chemical world on on modern life is rubbish and that there's like just like a hidden bonus track thing that there turns out to have been a perfect fit there and also however the main reason why it works is because suicide squad saw music as nothing more than a cynical cheap audience pop like something that you sit there and go like oh yeah i recognize that tune that's a cool tune um, like there's nothing else. I had no real interest or respect for music baby driver respects and gets music um and gets in the way that people listen to it. Like, I mean, I'm not sure exactly how you both, you might have different lives to me, hopefully, because therefore that means you live happier lives, but there we go. Um, but like music for me is like a very important, like, like it's like a very important personal connected part to my life from that there. I have a very emotional reaction to it, and, but it's also a constancy in my life. And therefore, I like, I always have a song in my head. I'm always listening to a bunch of songs that, um, like, I'm always listening to music all the time. I listen to music because right. I listen to music on the train, on the bus, driving, all that stuff. But music as well also kind of, like, fades in and out, in a way. Like, like sometimes it's there in the forefront. You surrender yourself over to it totally. You focus on it. Other times, it's just there in the background. It's just a daily facet of life. That's well, Matt. Um, it can be used for connection, like, to force connect, to forge connections with other people. Like, having a song that you love that uh, somebody else hasn't heard, but you get to introduce them to and maybe form a forge connection out of that or maybe somebody you don't know and you both share a song that you both like and that then you do it and you form a brief connection that way mixtapes cds remixes and that there um like like finding connections finding a constancy a variety of ever presence and also that sometimes music can just soundtrack cool shit like 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 the opening film essentially out there where Edgar Wright essentially redoes his video for Mint Royale's blues song to John, the John Spencer Explosion's Bell Bottoms. Um, and it is, you know, like, it's perfect. And it, in that moment, 
just like just before it sets off, as Anso all goes, you know, it's dancing around his car, mouthing along and that there. It's the moment where you just realize that Edgar Wright just gets music. Like he gets the power emotionally that a song can give you, the, how it works as a thrill of a chase, the pleasure of sharing. It's ever, it, it's constant ever presence, a facet of life that the sins and the tracks in, and how is able, and how essentially the film is able to visualize that kind of scenario in your head as to how you see music. Like, like have, have either of you like sat, ever sat there, heard a song and just kind of sat down and just like imagined some kind of like, action scene or car chase or romance scene like, like something in your head to a specific song no I can't uh, I mean a song if you've heard it on the soundtrack to a film if I hear it away from the film I re- might remember the scene from the film it was in but I wouldn't I haven't ever sat down listened, listened and sort of no, okay. well, I've heard I've heard sort of stuff and thought this would work really well in this sort yeah, of yeah film. like that yeah, yeah like like yeah. that kind of thing yeah um, like like that's the kind of thing that Edgar Wright seems to do he seems to just get he, like he gets music mm-hmm. in that way which well, of course the, he always the sound, has the, the soundtracks have always been quite a big part of the Palmetto yeah. trilogy as well they've always I mean it's never to this extent and never been built oh, around yeah. the soundtrack but they've always been quite. Yeah. Um, and what they do on the Cornetto trilogy, if you get the DVDs or the Blu-rays, is they have a trivia track because it's all they're all quite referential in lots of little in jokes or, or um, Easter eggs or things like that. And if you put that on while you're watching the film, you can see what you know all the diff- about the different songs they've picked and why they've picked them. Yeah, and it is quite interesting. Yeah, yeah. I was gonna say, like, 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 music's always been a part of Edgar Wright's work. Like, even what, even way back in Spaced. Um, like the, uh, the, scene, the scene where Tim and Daisy have like their shared epiphany at clubbing, um, like, like going out clubbing and that there, and just understanding the joy of just releasing and dancing and that there. Um, Sean for like, uh, the moment with Sean for Dead, where they sync up to Queen's "Don't Stop Me Now," which is also a lot of how you know Baby Driver sequences go up and there, syncing um, certain beats to beats of the music. Um, or Scott Pilgrim, especially you know, with uh, "Sex the Bomb," "Crash from the Boys," "Crash a Demon Head," and all that stuff. Um, and basically, and the reason it works well is because, like, is also the reason. Like, like Edgar Wright films are all about essentially taking very mundane, ever-present aspects of our lives, um, like spaces about relationships, Shaun of the Dead, you know, like hitting a dead end spot in your life, Hot Fuzz, the stifling nature of a small town, Scott Pilgrim, relationship baggage, and World's End, the powers of living in the, like too much of nostalgia. Um, Baby Driver is, uh, is about music. It's t- about taking those things and then using the tropes of genre filmmaking to blow them up on a big screen to make them appear like like bigger, like bigger, huger, like as if like somebody's unlocked your brain and just tur- and unspooled mundane thoughts into the most grand technical thing possible. Like cliche is to say, making like the ordinary look extraordinary, um, which is essentially what he's done here for music and also technically the nostalgia, since the whole film very much fetishizes that. Well, not fetishizing, like loves that kind of seventies chase movie. You know, the, um, the the chase plots, the good girl relationships, and out there, one last job, the car, all the songs on the soundtrack in some way have a link back. If they're not from pre nineteen eighty, they have a link back to like that era, like a musical touchstone back to that era. But whereas, but but because it's actually, but it, I also managed to have that kind of distance that the world's end didn't. 
like World's End eventually is also about nostalgia, but kind of lost its thread towards the end because it overreached. Um, like, like tried, like essentially became was about the Pell's nostalgia until it suddenly wasn't, and that kind of left it a bit of a confused mess. Although I still love the World's End, and I will fight people who try and say it's a bad movie. Um, but instead, Baby Driver just uses that kind of nostalgia thing as more like window dressing to focus more on music. Because that's ultimately what this film is about, is that there is a plot, there are really well-entertaining characters, some funny moments, I will, I will mention, because I know Owen was disappointed this wasn't funnier, is mm-hmm. uh, this wasn't really supposed to be a comedy. Like, I went in knowing this wasn't really meant to be a comedy. Um, no, there were some very funny yeah. moments in it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, there um, are some funny moments in that bit, the, but I think I mean, maybe... The, the Michael Myers bit was hilarious. Yeah. Yeah, like that's and, like, because it's Edgar Wright and he can't not make funny characters. And I, th- funny. I think as well, having the main character called Baby worked in the same way as Blackadder does having a character called Darling. Yeah. I don't know if that was yeah, just yeah. me, but it was just, for well, me, well, that was... Well, there was also a character in this movie called Darling. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, Sorry, so it looked like Owen was wanting to say something there. So yeah, I, I mean, like, no, Owen's no, not really no, spoken no. much about the film yet, so let's hear what uh, Owen wants to say. P- pretty much everything that's just been said. I mean, right. I haven't really got anything to... I mean, I, I, yeah, I did enjoy it. I didn't think it was... I, I think what I mean by it wasn't as funny as I hoped it would be is, like, the 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 jokes that were in it just made me kind of go, <laughs> instead of, like, proper laughing is what I mean, rather than... Yeah, yeah. There should have been more gags. I just meant that... Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah, it, just, it just yeah, didn't, yeah. It didn't make me laugh as much as perhaps I thought it was going to be because of yeah. who was directing it, if you know what I mean. Like, yeah, yeah. His other films, even World's End, that had me properly laughing out loud. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, but I, I still it, think about the noun sequence constantly. From what I'm saying. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh. So, so it was good. I enjoyed it. I thought it looked great. I also thought the only other negative thing I've got to say is because it's a film which, as we said, is basically like a musical a musical car chase i thought some of the car chase scenes weren't quite as well edited as they as i thought they looked from the trailer mm. i thought that um there were lots of cutaways considering it was all real car ch- you know car stunts there wasn't cgi involved yeah um i think the, i saw it at cineworld and there was a, a brief introduction for medgar right because they seemed quite fond of doing that for their uh, unlimited previews these days um and he ba- he just he seemed to be quite proud of the fact it was all all real stunts and i thought it's a shame that it didn't really show that off particularly well um in yeah. the actual film but uh, otherwise i mean i haven't really got anything to complain about it i enjoyed it i was yeah. you know came out of the cinema quite happy and um yeah. I, I, would, I would go and see it again for sure yeah um again like I think specifically because, like, I feel like this is probably the purest Edgar Wright film, um, as a result. Mm-hmm. Like, um, like, in, like, 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 obviously all of Edgar Wright's films are Edgar Wright films. That's, I think that's what most of us love about him, about that is the fact this is a filmmaker who actually puts himself in all of his films with, like, such a distinct personality and drive and all that here. Mm-hmm. But I think here, this, and this is also why I'm hesitant to put it, even though I love it and I think it's one of the best films of the summer, why I'm hesitant to put it right up there with all of his other work just yet repeat viewings obviously are coming and are a necessity for an Edgar Wright film it's because this feels like his purest work and that this is the purest look into Edgar Wright's mind how it works what he loves the things he's passionate about mostly unburdened by an attempt by focusing on um you know like on things like deeper thematic resonance or complex plot twists and all that kind of stuff from out there um 
But at the same time, I kind like I love it for that because that kind of passion just overflows the entire film there and drives it forward and keeps it going. And it's just for me, in any case, it's I mean, I'm a huge Mark Fredger, right? Um, as anybody who has ever paid attention to any of my works will know. Um, but like, like to just sit there and kind of just watch somebody who sort of like me kind of gets music and is that passionate about music and that, that it kind of, for me, it just meant I could surrender myself to it totally and I adored it. Um, well, a, I mean, lot, it's yeah. interesting because I, I love um, Adam Buxton and I don't know if you listen to Adam Buxton's podcast, but he interviewed Edgar Wright quite recently. Mm. And because, you know, they're all part of the same sort of, uh, I'm going to call it a clique. I think it is yeah. basically a clique with him and Joe Cornish and uh, Louis Theroux. And when is Joe Cornish going to make another film? Yeah, well, um, but that interview with Edgar Wright, I kind of stopped liking him that much. <laughs> it's like to hear him talk was, he just was constant. And he makes a, a point of it himself. He's aware of what he's doing with the name dropping, but he was constant. And I just thought he didn't come across as a very nice person. I mean, he said it's perhaps unfair because it's an, you know, an interview and maybe he was just having a bad day or whatever it was. But I just thought... I, I don't normally turn off the Adam Buxton podcast, but that one was, wasn't was far off it. Well, well, I, I might have yeah. to stop listening before it completely turns me off him. Yeah. Well, oh, oh, and, um, I mean, I love him, but also I probably never want to meet him because I'd just be like intimidated by his vast knowledge of films <laughs> and music and everything and that there. But I mean, let's, let's focus on the films here, Matt Bear, which means that mm-hmm. it's really, yeah. in the case of Baby Drive, it's really, really, really good and just, and it's going to bomb. It's going to bomb so, so badly. It's going to crash and burn because Sony are fucking idiots. And it's a shame because it's amazing. <laughs> mm. Who was uh, that- the idiot who decided to, br- who, who brought it forward from late August to the same week as Despicable Me 3? And why have they not been fired yet? <laughs> that was uh, Baby Driver. Just before we go, got some recommendations for the week ahead. I'm going to television. I'm going to. Uh, Thursday morning, Wednesday night, Thursday morning, just after midnight uh, on ITV4. If you want to depress yourself, if you're up that late, watch The Road. Mm. Yeah, that is quite a depressing one to go for there. Yeah, if, you're, if, you're, if you can't get to sleep, um, watch The Road and you will not sleep. Well, it's, well, at least it's probably not as depressing as the experience of watching Trans Fivemas. No, it mm. can't be. Mm. It's impossible to be. Um, Callum? Uh, I am going to go for Sky Cinema, or the Sky Movies package, for those you who have it out there. And um, Queen of Ca- the Queen of Catway was just added. Um, the Disney chess uh, sport chess sports biopic um, with uh, Lupita Nyong'o and David Oyelowo. Um, no, everybody forgot about this as soon as it came out last year, which is a shame because it's great. Um, <laughs> just a really great, really entertaining, heartfelt underdog sports story. Um, very well done with excellent performances all around out there. Go check it out. It's really okay. it's really great. And Owen? On film four on Thursday evening slash Friday morning, whatever way round you wanna you wanna call it. One thirty AM. Uh it's Barbarian Sound Studio by Ooh. Peter Strickland, which I talked about on last week's podcast for our um our triple bill of yeah. dream jobs in movies. Um, yeah, stars Toby Jones, he's a sound recordist, flies to Italy to work on a Santini film, not a horror film, in the 1970s, and then things go a bit weird. But it's one of those that if you... I don't know 
if you've got some way of watching it on a computer and putting headphones in rather than watching it on the TV, or unless you've got a really good surround sound system, then then do that because it's all about the audio, that film, and totally worth watching it in whatever way you're going to benefit from that because, uh, yeah, it's it's just awesome. Okay, that is all for this week's Failed Critics Podcast. Thank you all for listening. Um, and hope you haven't suffered through transphysmas as much as we have. Mm. Um, next week, well, uh, probably won't be as much as me because I did fall asleep. Yes. So I yeah. So we, we got it worse, really, didn't we, Steve? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, if Owen really is going to be a proper film reviewer, uh, he should go back and watch the whole thing. Is that is that right? Is that what I've got to do? Yeah. Waste I mean, another if you, if you, three yeah. hours. Make that yeah. your punishment if you win the quiz. I know. I know <laughs> he's got. I know he's got an unlimited card, so it won't cost him any money. So I won't feel guilty about doing it at all. <laughs> um what's up next week owen uh next week is um we have a, a triple bill podcast it's me tony and brooker that was recorded in the mitre in oxford um it's got a triple bill which is getting the band back together again which steve you provided before you couldn't then get back together with us well, i actually to provided record it. it after i decided i couldn't make it I was just, <laughs> yeah. you guys you guys were struggling for ideas so he, yeah he, he likes irony he likes the man likes irony <laughs> what can you say yeah. yeah the last one we did was uh, in the old contemptibles in birmingham so this was all about films where it just the, it's about getting together an ensemble again and i think we came up with some interesting choices so that would be worth, have I, worth a, checking have I got a week off next week You've got a week off, Steve. Oh, yeah. What am I going to do with my Monday evening? What? What are the? What, how are the people going to know whether Despicable Me Three is any good or not, Owen? The I people know. must know. Yeah, because it won't do so well unless we find out it's good and then share it through word of mouth. Yeah, they do it afterwards in that bell, which is suffer. obviously we are, we are the people who will be able to stop the minions. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, you can find the website at failedcritics.com. Um, thank you all for listening. And join us again, but not including me, next week <laughs> uh, for another podcast. Sometimes when your hopes have all been shattered, there's no way to turn. You wonder how you keep going. Think of all the things that really matter in the chances you You
Critics Podcast is presented by Steve Norman and Owen Hughes with contributions from different guests every week with original music provided by Kevin McLeod of Incompetech.com from the track The Bandit remixed by James Yule who you can find at jamesyule.com You can find us on Facebook and Twitter at Failed Critics on iTunes and all good podcast apps or you can check us out at failedcritics.com If you enjoyed this episode please subscribe to the podcast on iTunes and leave a rating or a review and why not check out our sister podcasts Character Unlock and Field and Mullinger's Underground Nights from the failed media network of podcasts. Thanks for listening. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.